Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere. Today, we talk with Zachary Pisik. He is a doctoral candidate in the Department of Sociology at UC Davis. His research and teaching focus on the causes and consequences of crime and punishment, specifically examining mass incarceration and the war on drugs and crime. Before graduate school, he worked in the nonprofit sector, designing reentry programming for formerly incarcerated people, teaching in prisons, and examining policies and practices that support crime victims. He has won numerous awards for his academic work, regularly presents at leading conferences in sociology, criminology, and law, and has served as a reviewer for multiple journals and publishers. He is the co-founder of the Underground Scholars Initiative at UC Davis, which serves formerly incarcerated students across the UC system. In this episode, Zach talks about his story as someone who went from being incarcerated to a leading researcher on crime and punishment, the history of mass incarceration, as well as the wide-scale failures that led us to our current system and what can be done to reform. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, doctoral candidate Zachary Pisek. Thank you for having me. We'd love to start off by hearing more about your story. You previously mentioned a non-traditional path to research, from going to the military, to being institutionalized, to going to college, and to now getting your PhD. Yeah, so it's actually a little more complicated than that, and it's hard to summarize a story. I'm 39, so it'd be it'd take a while to get here. Um, but I, I was actually institutionalized before the military, then after. Um, I was born on the Iron Range in northern Minnesota. It's like where most of the steel came for the United States during World War One and Two. But then the economy collapsed with globalization. And it's like all across the country, rural areas are actually some of the highest crime areas in every state. It's like the top of, of the top 10. It's like at least half, including California with as many big cities as we have. It's like half have towns with 20,000 or fewer people or whatever, the most dangerous cities in the state. Don't quote me on the exact statistics nationwide, but that was the town I grew up in had 10,000 people and it was the most dangerous city in the state for years. Um, The hospital I was born in, quick kind of tidbit, Chris Pratt was born in the same hospital. He's kind of a shitty actor. I don't know if you know (laughs) who he is, but, and then Robert Mondavi, the wine guy, the guy who put Napa Valley on the map, he was born in the same hospital as me as well. Um, Both my parents were miners. So like basically everybody up there either works in the mines or does something to serve miners or whatever. But with the mining, the mines collapsing, it was like 80% of the jobs were lost between 1980 and 2000. So that was like, I was born in 83. So like most of my upbringing, just like everybody I knew, their parents were losing their jobs. Everybody was fighting. People struggled with like addiction, mental illness, domestic violence was terrible up there. Um, My dad sold drugs and like throughout his life, he recently died. Um, but that was his most steady form of income. And I'd say both of my parents were workaholics. Like he had a, he worked in the mines, but then he'd get laid off. He'd work at a mine for 13 years, get laid off, wow. work in a mine for eight years, get laid off or whatever. And so selling drugs was his most steady form of income his entire life. And so I, I grew up listening to stories about people running from the cops and uh, selling drugs, doing drugs or all, and all that. I started getting in trouble for my first time when I was 13. I was arrested for stealing guns. Then I was like in and out throughout my teenage years. Um, when I was 17, uh, I had a friend who got killed and I went through drug treatment right around the same time. And when I got out, a military recruiter showed up at my door and two months later I shipped out to boot camp. So I went and did basic training in between my junior and senior year of high school, 
came back. I was in the army when the planes hit the towers. So that was, I thought I was going to war. Instead, I started drinking again, got in an altercation with police, caught some felonies for that, got discharged from the army, unable to complete training. So I didn't get a dishonorable, um, but that was pretty devastating. I thought I'd found my place in life in the military or whatever. Um, so when that didn't work out, I wasn't really sure what to do. I went back, started selling drugs again, um, was in and out some more. Then when I, was, when I was 21, I ended up joining this Christian program instead of going to prison. I was looking at seven years in prison or I could do this 13 month intense Christian program. It's called Teen Challenge. It's actually the biggest network of tre treatment centers in the world, but they're not um, licensed as treatment centers. They're like recovery centers or something because they're very faith-based or whatever, but they're also classroom-based. And so for like 13 months, morning to night, like you get up at like six in the morning and you're working on stuff. So it was very rigorous. So only like a third of the people who enter the program finish. And that prepared me for college. You know, I had never had a job. I'd never done well in school. I dropped out over and over again. I never did homework. Um, but then that program, you know, I, I, I always liked writing. I always liked something about school. Um, and then it was really just to make my probation officer happy that I started community college and I got there and it was easy. You know, I was like working construction full time. I was volunteering. I was writing music in my free time. And then I was going to school and just getting A's. And I was like, unreal. You know, you hear about learning disabilities and that's like, I've really come to think about learning differences that like compared to the average high school kid, my reading level is like classifies me as disabled. But when I took the graduate entrance exams, the GREs for graduate school, my uh, reading score was in the top decile. So it's like compared to the average graduate school, I'm among the best readers compared to the average high school student, I'm disabled. You know, and I think that says a lot about our, our systems in general, I would say, but about our education system. So I started college and it was, I loved it. Um, yeah, so that was, college went well. The way I ended up in graduate school so I was doing well, transferred to a four-year. I went to a small private school. It was unreal, totally different from the University of California, Davis. Like I came here, I'm a teacher here and I'm like apologizing to students. Like, I don't know how you're passing. I would have been <laughs> lost in these classrooms. I, my, my classrooms, it was like average at my school was 11 to one student teacher ratio. Most of my classes had like five people in them. And so I, and then there were semesters. So I'd have a professor teaching me stuff for 16 weeks. And then they assign you a paper and then you have to write your paper and then they read it over the weekend and then you get it handed back. It's got red ink all over it or whatever. And then they're looking you right, right in the eyes as they're giving you feedback. It's a totally different experience in here. And it really helped prepare me. They had this great research program that I ended up joining. That, the way I got into research is I wanted to graduate with honors. Mm -hmm. And to graduate with honors, you had to do a research project. And I was like, oh, so... I did research. I almost did it on Christian rap music, which <laughs> um, that probably would have been a dead end in my research career. I ended up doing it on uh, the religious program I went through, the, the way the language they use in that Christian program, like created identities that were different from addict or criminal. They were Christian, child of God, you know, and then later for me, it became student. And so that was what my undergraduate research was on. And so as part of that, I was reading a bunch of sociology and that was it. I was studying abroad in England. And I remember the time on my bed in a dorm room where I was reading this book and thinking like, these people get it, you know? And then I looked like sociology, maybe I'll go into sociology. And then I got here and they do not get it. But <laughs> some of them do, you know, I love sociology, don't always love sociologists, but I've been here since 2013. I took a couple of years of leave during the pandemic, but my research has um, gone on steady. I love it. I love the environment. I love the people. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Sweet. 
So at what age did you start college? 21 or 22. Okay. So I, I turned 22 in October. So I was probably 21. Okay. And then I started when yeah. I was 22. Okay. Yeah. And you were in Minnesota, correct? Yeah, Minnesota. Okay. So what brought you out to Davis or how did you find yeah. the California like university system? Well, that was University of California Davis yeah. brought me to Davis. I'd never heard of it. You know, that's like in California, everybody's heard of all the UCs or whatever. I'd mm. never heard of it. I, I was talking to a professor at the University of Minnesota who uh, I met. I met a professor, Teresa Gowan. She really became a mentor, helped uh, me come into sociology. And then she connected me with a guy named Josh Page, a criminologist at the University of Minnesota who told me about Davis, suggested I come study here so we were i was looking for programs with her she's an academic as well okay sacramento is a capital city uh, okay. I northern california honestly i never cared to come to california i love it now that i'm here though i'll probably never leave yeah that's great so could you talk to us a bit more about your research specifically because you talked about your research project to graduate with honors how have you continued to evolve in that field in sociology and how do you go about studying prison reform and the carceral state? Yeah. So like very broadly, I study the causes and consequences of crime and punishment, right? So crime and punishment, not just crime, like also what are the consequences of punishment? And sometimes that's crime. And I'm a sociologist or a sociological criminologist. And I would call myself a sociologist first that's i'm not especially interested in quote-unquote criminals i study society and groups within society um so groups institutions society as a whole not individuals like instead of focusing on specific people like lab rats i try to understand crime by turning the lens around and studying the systems that we're all embedded in right like right now we're engaged in the higher education system or whatever you want to think of so i look at the systems themselves. And then more specifically, I study uh, like the intersection of crime and punishment with stuff like health and health policy, addiction, aging, education, inequality, identity, organizations and institutions, official decision-making, and then specific, like I have projects. So my specific projects, like at evangelical drug rehabs, I'm, that's, I'm still working on that project, the school to prison pipeline, formerly incarcerated college students, and then formerly incarcerated older adults. And so all of them, I study, you know, I'm not looking at the formerly incarcerated college students. I'm looking at the system in which formerly incarcerated people live or, and engage in school or whatever they do. And then how academics and policymakers contribute to the problems they think they're solving, right? So a lot of the time we're trying to solve problems that were created by the generation of academics ahead of us. And that is, I just heard this quote by Robert Oppenheimer who helped develop the atomic bomb. And he said, it's like perfectly clear that the whole world is going to hell. Our only hope is that nobody tries to stop it. And I think that's right. You know, I just think there's like so much where well-intentioned people are causing these problems. And so that's, again, like I tend to look at the system, not the individual. So I look at academics, I look at policymakers. Yeah. And what are some of the things you've noticed at the intersection between these different systems that you think play back into the systems very well? Yeah. So what can you say more about what you mean by that? Yeah. In the sense that like looking at how a policy for education can play into the effects on 
later individuals going to prison. What are some of those things, not necessarily just with education policy, but across those different, you know, it could be education, it could be healthcare. What are some of those truths, if you will, that you found? Yeah. So this is hard to talk. This is like what I focus on um, is, is the overlap. And so there's everything's connected, right? We separate stuff as if it's separate, but it's not. And I mean, just to use something like basic, uh, the air, you know, the air seems like it's something that's separate from me, but then I breathe it in, part of it becomes part of me, and then I exhale and part of me becomes part of the air. We are intimately connected with everything around us. And so that's like education policy, healthcare policy are absolutely connected to crime policy and all of those phenomena in between or whatever, right? So what you'd look at with any given system, so the school to prison pipeline, right? That's a system where how do we end up with this school system, which the intention of it is to increase equality, or that's one of the intentions of it is to increase equality, give everyone a chance or whatever. And yet now we have this well-accepted phenomenon, the school to prison pipeline, right? A pipeline sending poor black and brown and immigrant disabled kids from the public schools where they're supposed to be getting help where they're supposed to be getting a quality education to juvenile centers and prisons, right? So that's um, one of the examples of the connection. And that is uh, teachers adopting logics that come out of the criminal justice system. The idea that there's criminals out there, that drugs are highly associated with violent crime, that that's the thing we need to be concerned about with kids in school, that young kids beginning at five, six, seven, eight years old should be screened for quote unquote risk factors so that you can figure out which kids are at risk and help them is the idea, but that's part of the pipeline, right? So that's that's one example I'm, mm. and I could- Yeah, keep, keep going on that, that's super interesting. So healthcare is another one where like our, our mental healthcare. So if you look at charts, there's charts that show Bernard Harcourt, uh, institutionalization rate. If you Google that and then look at Google images, you should be able to find it. A, a, a graph of the mental health asylum rate, the people who are in mental health asylums for the first part of the 1900s and the prison rate. And you see there's an inverse relation where we abolish the asylums because they were atrocious. People were suffering in them. They were violating Americans' rights or whatever. So we abolish them. And you can see on the graph where as the uh, rate of institutionalization in asylums goes down, incarceration in prisons goes up. And so that's, in some ways, that seems very clear. And in fact, like two thirds or something of the people in prison now have mental illnesses. A lot of them are untreated. Our prisons and jails are the largest provider of mental health care in the country, even though most people who need mental health care don't get it, right? So that's a connection between uh, the criminal legal and mental health care systems. And then the idea that people who are having mental health episodes, meltdowns or whatever, that they're criminals. That's another, that's a way of thinking, right? We don't let people who are in the throes of a, a football mania or whatever sign a contract. They're not legally liable for that. But somebody walking down a row of cars, smashing out windows at a stoplight, yelling that they're Jesus or whatever, if they do anything, we hold them accountable. They end up in prison. And so it's, that doesn't make any sense. And that's if, if you're going to criminalize symptoms of mental illness or symptoms of drug addiction, people don't age out of that. That's, you know, you send someone who's struggling with mental illness to a cage, they don't get better. And when we talk about people in jail and prison struggling with mental illness, two thirds of them, it's not schizophrenia, it's depression and anxiety. And depression and anxiety, uh, going through college, I'd meet people from privileged life, privileged backgrounds. And they'd go through depressions and they'd struggle for a month. They wouldn't be able to get out of bed. They'd think everything was worthless or whatever. I knew people going through depression in a cell, you know, or going through depression homeless or and experiencing anxiety 
in these terrible conditions, you know, and that's, we, depression and mental illness are not these mysterious phenomena that we don't know how to treat. They come and go. They're very treatable. People can overcome them. So it's not controversial. And yet we just keep sweeping them into our jails and prisons. So that's another example of it. I think one more example would be military and police um, that, and I don't even have to say that much that our police are being militarized. It's not just the equipment, it's the strategies, it's the personnel. Our park rangers are being militarized. You know, it's like everything. This is one institution influencing all the other institutions. And do you think the reason, or is there data on the reason why two-thirds of the mental health care in America comes from prisons? Is that just because it's easier for the government to neglect it? So, I mean, that that's a question that people debate. And then the stat I quoted, I, I quoted two-thirds of the people in prison have mental illnesses. I don't know what the, oh. most, the, and then the other fact I quoted is like the jails and prisons are the largest providers of mental health care or mental health uh, services in the country. And so why is it like that? I think there's a lot of reasons with everything. It's also complicated, right? And that's where like anybody who starts making these claims, they're not wrong. Is the prison industrial complex. Oh, it's capitalism driving all of this. So they're not wrong that there's this industrial complex that arose alongside prisons. And now there's private companies making money off of that. But there's going to be an industrial complex that rises up around anything the government does because they're issuing taxpayer money in contracts or whatever. And so with, I mean, I, what I would say in simple terms as why it is, why it is, is that the government saw that prisons can be used to solve problems, that criminalizing people can be used to solve social problems. I think they saw that at, at the end of the civil rights movement. And when they saw it with one problem, they started using it to solve other problems, mental illness, drug addiction, poverty. Um, yeah, you know, and that's, it's like the government has an incentive if they can't take care of their population to make an excuse for why they're not taking care of them. Well, these people are criminals. You know, I don't, why would I take it? We should punish them, right? That Now the government's keeping us safe. Not only are they not failing the American people, they're keeping us safe from our fellow citizen but you don't think of him as a fellow citizen. You think of him as a criminal. Yeah. Seems like a very short term solution as well, because we're just creating more problems later down the line when we get these first time offenders in the same system as real lifelong criminals who've done horrific things. And you mentioned that earlier when we met before, could you talk about the implications of some of these first time petty crime offenses and those offenders going to systems with real scary, dangerous people and how that could cause more problems later down the line. Yeah, you know, and that's, it's like hard to draw lines between different types of people. Like who's the truly scary one or whatever, right? Like most murders only kill one person. And that's like, they're not, most people don't have to be afraid of them, but their wife did or their best friend did or whoever they killed, that was who they had to be killed or whatever. So it's, you know, that separating the drawing the line of like there's these truly dangerous people and then less dangerous people i think most of us there's a quote i saw in scarcity we bear the teeth i think put people in desperate situations they do desperate things um but i also think like there are people you know like when i'm doing this work a lot of the time what about mass shooters what about serial killers and rapists or like anytime you mention crime that's where people's mind goes 
that's not who's in our prisons. We have 2 million people in prisons. They're not all serial killers and mass shooters or whatever. A tiny percentage of them are. And so it's like, you might be afraid to abolish prisons because you don't want to let those people out. But meanwhile, we're sending people to those cells. So you have people, uh, the kid who's selling drugs in high school or getting in too many fights or he's going through some issues at home with abuse and now he's at school beating people up or whatever. So it's like, yeah, he's problematic. But then you send him to a cage with someone who might eat you. You know, what do you think that's going to do to that kid? Like he's been fighting in school, selling drugs. Now he goes somewhere where he really has something to be afraid of. And he has to figure out what he's going to do in that situation. And then he's going to get out. And then he's going to come and he's going to see all the people who sent him there. And that's us. You know, it's like we might be able to blame our parents for some time, but those are our police, our prisons, our policies. And I think it makes people bitter when you mistreat them. Uh, there's a quote uh, from this criminologist, Robert Agnew. Uh, he he does strain theory, um, and it's like one of the simplest theories of crime I've ever heard. He said, if you treat people poorly, sometimes they get mad and engage in delinquency. <laughs> Just like, <laughs> simple enough, you know? And that's, I think when you're talking about teenage kids, you don't need reasons more than that for why they're misbehaving. Have you seen these takeovers, cars whipping shitties and... Yeah. It's like you see these people hanging out the windows or whatever, and they smash into each other all the time. You smash into that car, your leg's gone, dude, or your car flips over. They don't care. That's why they're doing it, right? It, it looks cool. They're blowing off fireworks or whatever. So it's like when you're talking to young kids, like trying to scare them straight or warn them, it's stupid. You know, sometimes this stuff, you tell them not to do something, they're actually going to do that because you said no. And it makes it cool, right? These takeovers, it's like that. the rebelliousness of it is what makes it attractive to some people yeah so definitely no so what do you say to the people that see those things and well we can't just do nothing what do we do to the kid who's angry beating people up at school how do we stop that but also help his home life and him deal with it in proper ways yeah, you know, I mean, some of these problems we're creating ourselves. So you have a public school system where kids are being forced to go to a place they hate a lot of the time for six to eight hours a day. And then they're dealing with stuff at home. They're bringing that to school. And then they're like, why can't this sit, kid sit still? We need to put them on drugs. And they're putting them on heavy drugs or whatever. Or, you know, and so a lot of this stuff, it's like maybe start by not forcing people to be in places they don't want to be, thinking that the average student is what everybody should be like, right? So that's, if a kid's bored, then they're going to act up in class. And then they act up in class, get uh, in trouble with the teacher. Now they're delinquent. And when you do that to a kid who's 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, at some point that becomes their identity. And as you get older, you engage in more and more serious crime. So it's, you know, it's, I think, forcing a bunch of kids to be together as a recipe recipe for trouble. I think our public school system needs to be completely rethought. And then when you have individuals who are causing harm, like that's something where it's like... I, you have to take it on a case-by-case -case basis. And I'm not saying don't stop people from causing harm. I think you should, but keep it in perspective. Like, is this kid really the most harmful person in your life? I think even when you take something more serious, like um, people convicted of sex crimes, I was just watching this thing about they were getting a quote-unquote sexually violent predator to the town and they were having a town meeting about like trying to keep him out or whatever. We don't want sexually violent predators in our town. 
I have some bad news for you. There's a whole bunch of sexually violent predators in every town. Most people who are sexually assaulted are sexually assaulted by people they know. You know, the idea that like, oh, we're going to rally together and get this one. You're wasting. If you care about your daughters, you should be watching out for your sons and nephews and cousins and brothers and neighbors. That's who's going to cause harm. You know, so it's like a lot of the time we, it's, we look at something bad and then obsess over it. The mass shootings is another example where it's just like people are so wrapped up about these mass shootings and they're terrifying. I think about them when I'm in public places, but a hundred uh, on average, depending on how you count on average, a hundred Americans a year die in mass shootings, you know, and if you increase how you count it, it's like estimates are a average of 500 a year. So 400,000 Americans die from tobacco every year. We don't care. That's not that scary. A teenager with an AR-15 walking into a school, that's scary. So we care about it a lot, right? And it's, we're watching the news. It's a horror movie, but we're thinking of it as like a newscast or whatever. And then, oh, we have to do something about this. You don't have to do something about every bad thing that happens in the world all the time. Like sometimes it's just like we, the kid who's beating people up or whatever, let the principal deal with that. Don't turn it into a major issue. Oh, we have violence in our schools and our children aren't safe. We have the child predator. You know, people just get so worked up about issues that really aren't a threat to them. Like most of us are not victims of crime very often. The people who are victimized by crime are the people who are most likely to commit crime. That's the same people that's most likely to experience crime. Most of us don't experience it. And the crime we could do experience, we could have avoided. You left your wallet on the uh, seat of your car, your backpack in the car, whatever. And it's like, yeah, that sucks. You got your window broken, your backpack stolen or whatever. You could have avoided that by putting it in your trunk. And like, I, I don't mean to make a defense for whoever broke your window. Like there should be consequences for that. I think there sh we should have a criminal legal system for people who cause each other harm. But that's not what our criminal legal system is aimed at right now. What is the carceral state and the idea of mass incarceration. Yeah, so mass incarceration, that's a term that uh, um, David Garland came up around 2000, and it refers to the five to 700% increase in the incarceration rate in the United States over the past half century. So incarceration rates historically and around the world are incredibly stable. Um, it tends to be about the same over time and th and that changed in the United States in the 1960s and 70s were exceptional in that way. Like today we have 5% of the world's population, 25% of all incarcerated people are Americans. Uh, we have 2 million people in jails and prisons today. That's mass incarceration. And then the carceral states. So the idea of carceral refers to of or relating to a jail or prison. That's all that carceral refers to. And then I think Michel Foucault uh, he's a French philosopher, Michel Foucault, M-I-C-H-E-L-F-O-U-C-A-U-L-T. He wrote Discipline and Punish. And I think that's where the term carceral state really comes from. He talked about the carceral archipelago, which is the mechanisms, technologies, knowledge systems, and networks related to the carceral continuum, right? So not just the prisons, but the idea of like at-risk people or predicting crime, just everything to do with um, the carceral continuum, the jails and prisons. So the carceral state is all the ways in which our lives, and especially the lives of some people, not mm -hmm. everyone, but as, um, all of us are controlled by government crime control efforts, um, whether directly through police, prisons, probation, parole, or house arrest, or indirectly by shaping the way we all think, controlling the media, framing populations as criminal or threatening, and so on. 
So that's kind of the short answer of what the carceral state is. The long answer, like where did the carceral state come from? So the tendency to become a carceral state, that's like a natural tendency of governments. They just accumulate power and the ability to control their populations more efficiently over time. So in some ways, that term carceral state, even though it's new and being used to describe the United States specifically, it also, it's just kind of a tendency. Uh, the United States was literally born after fighting a revolutionary war over armed government agents patrolling our streets, harassing American citizens on behalf of a central government. And that's exactly what we have today. So it's, how did we get from that to this? And in some ways, the war on drugs and crime has started with the expansion of everything from federal law enforcement to local police and citizen militias under alcohol prohibition. That was a huge turning point in American history, even though we ended up repealing the constitutional amendment the only time we ever repealed an amendment. Um, the government just kept growing after that. Uh, a war on drugs replaced the war on prohibition, the war on alcohol. And a lot of people forget that. Uh, but a lot of the same federal officials that worked for the Federal Prohibition Bureau just went and worked for the Federal Bureau of Narcotics as prohibition was being repealed. Uh, instead of alcohol, which was a lot of immigrants, they targeted cannabis and heroin, which was black people and immigrants. Uh, the welfare state also grew as alcohol prohibition was ending. That was the Great Depression. Uh, so more and more people began uh, working for the government. A lot of the highway programs and stuff were born then. Um, and then more and more people relying on the government. And so the government grew in both ways, right? It was the police forces, the law enforcement arm, and the welfare thing. It was a Democrat, Lyndon Johnson, who actually declared a war on crime in the 1960s. But it was Republicans like Nixon and Reagan. They were the first ones to capitalize on tough on crime uh, political rhetoric. And it was something like a conservative backlash about the civil rights protests and the hippie movement, right? I think that's where the war on drugs and uh, became racist. It gets important to remember that like now these terms like Democrat, Republican, they're just words and the meanings of them change over time. They're parties and the Ab Abraham Lincoln was a Republican. You know, 1880, Republicans were the ones who were fighting for abolishing slavery. Richard Nixon for all his flaws and he seemed like a crazy guy. I mean, I don't know if you've read biographies about him. He seemed kind of off the rails or whatever. But like for all his flaws, he cared a lot about racial equality. He was a Quaker. That was like central to his like belief system or whatever. Southern Democrats were probably the most overtly racist political group in the 1960s. And Nixon got elected by using racially coded language to appeal to them after Democrats like JFK got elected by aligning themselves with civil rights leaders. So there was this realignment of political parties that happened in the 1960s and then in the 1970s and on that made it so when you hear about mass incarceration or the war on drugs being a bipartisan effort, like in California, they blame Republicans a lot. I'm telling you, all, all across the country, I'd say Republicans get the blame, but Democrats are equally blameworthy. You know, uh, Bill Clinton, Joe Biden, all these people were out there talking about super predators and getting the drug dealers off the streets and all that. So now they're reformers or whatever. But again, like these are just words and they change over time and politicians know that. Uh, so Nixon declares drugs public enemy number one in 1970. Reagan gets elected in 1980 and spends his entire eight years cutting welfare programs and sending that money to law enforcement, including a growing number of drug task forces. So there's uh, stats out there. In 1980, it was like 2% of all Americans thought drugs were an important social problem. After eight years of uh, Reagan saying, just say no and funding drug task forces, it was like 60% of Americans thought drugs were an important social problem. 
politicians have that kind of power. And so that's like, oh, what are we going to do about the fentanyl? You know, and it's, well, I'm not, I don't know how to solve every problem in the world. And people just obsess and fixate over these mass shootings, fentanyl, serial killers, rapists or whatever. And it's, it's not productive. And that a lot of that comes out of this fusion of crime control with governance. Um, two important things that started happening under Nixon and Reagan that are ironic, considering the small government image Republicans often try to claim for themselves. They gave federal control uh, over rapidly expanding local and state police agencies. Um, that's always been controversial. So they used funding to get local police agencies to align themselves with the federal government, right? In order to get these grants, you have to do what the government says. And that was a lot of the drug task forces. That's controversial in a country that's always valued independence and distrust, distrusted government that now all the local law enforcement across the country are marching lockstep uh, with the federal government. And then there was also growing, growing coordination between law enforcement and pretty much every other public institution. That's what we were talking about before. So not, we have the school to prison pipeline, jails and prisons are the largest providers of mental health care in this country, military feeds, police, personnel, equipment, strategies, right? And so that all started happening in the 60s and 70s too. 9-11 was another pivotal event in the history of the carceral state. Uh, the death of 2,000 Americans at a time when the government was promising to keep them safe, that probably should have threatened their legitimacy. And instead, it was another opportunity to expand their national and international reach. Um, now, we're all fine with missing flights, getting full body scans, pat-downs at airports, right? That's new. That started after 9-11. And yet, now it's just normal. 23 years later, 22 years later, we all... You know, people upset when they miss their flight, but they never think, why do I have to go through this? Could 2,000 people died 20 years ago? You know, 400,000 Americans die from tobacco every year. Nobody goes to prison for that. We don't have any security protocols or whatever. And so it's, it's, it's just this stuff gets in our head. We're watching our police forces become paramilitary forces complete with military equipment that they deploy on American streets against Americans. We're fine with the government. We know the government is literally listening to us through all our electronic devices and doesn't, well, I'm not a revolutionary. I don't care, right? This is, a, we're, I hope the government's keeping us safe. Are they, you know, because what's going to kill you and me and everybody I love? Heart disease, cancer, car accidents, you know, that's the stuff we should be thinking about. Alzheimer's, you know, and we're all going to die. There needs to be some acceptance of that. What's going to affect the quality of life until then? Is crime really a big part of all our lives besides what we see on the media, right? We get scared of it. It is a big part of our lives, but that's partly a product of the time we're living in. And that's the carceral state. Uh, and this is where my research picks up, like right around 2010, 2020. Makes a lot of sense. It seems that so much of it is the 24-hour news cycle, the constantly showing you the worst things that are happening. And now with social media, it's not just on the TV. It's on the phone that's always in your pocket that can always buzz to give you a notification of the next horrible thing that happens somewhere in the world. It's like when you start looking at 8 billion people, you're bound to always find a horrific story. And I really want to highlight what you mentioned earlier of when you put someone in a desperate situation, they're going to act out. And it seems like one of the biggest things we could possibly do is help the financial situation of the people who are struggling the most. 
in finding ways to reform the education system so that they're not just locked in a classroom, bored out of their mind, but they are engaging creatively, experiencing the environment, getting out there, and just having a bit more fun in it because a lot of the lo lower education is not fun. And it's only until you get to what, 18 or 20 years old that you can start to study something that you like. And is there more that you want to highlight on the idea of giving people more resources in the early part of their life to then maybe get out of an economically like hard situation or being able to grow and like find a career that suits them better. How would you like to see the, maybe how would you like to see the school system change to better support some of these disadvantaged areas? Yeah, it's a little, it's hard to think about the school system because that's really not my thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like I went through school, um, and had my experiences there and I've thought a lot about it, but I really don't know what to do about K through 12 education. I mean, it was designed for a very, see, and this is like, it was designed for a very specific purpose. Um, and it was designed by eugenicists. It was designed by people who thought there was superior and inferior humans, right? And this is, there's a PBS documentary called the Eugenics Crusade mm -hmm. that everyone should watch. That's part of our history. A lot of the same stuff that the Nazis were doing, we were doing here. And those people who had those ideas were prominent figures. So the um, person who designed California's public education system was one of the most prominent eugenicists in the country. I read this book um, by Vajra Watson. She, she worked in the education department here before. I think she's at Sac State now. Um, but she had talked about doing research in Oakland and interviewing this young black woman who said she felt like the system was designed for her to fail. And Vajra Watson wrote a whole chapter of her book showing that that young girl was right. The system was designed for her to fail. It was designed to sort the geniuses to the top and the idiots to the bottom. And as they were developing the SATs and IQ tests, if women and minorities did better than white men on them, they reconfigured it. They figured there must be something wrong with the test. And so they just redesigned the test. Um, my wife is a pediatrician. She was just learning about this too. And this is, it's like, this is all part of our history. It's not controversial. It's not questionable. It's not like hidden. They were the most prominent people trying to figure out ways to get the smartest, best, and brightest to sort to the top. And the people they thought of as the best and brightest were the people who were like them. So, you know, we have a whole school system that was designed by, from what I would say are like faulty assumptions. You know, it, it's like, and how do you fix that? I don't know. You know, I, I think a lot of this stuff, it's like you got to stop trying to fix everything. You know, like I, with the public education system, I I don't want to support charter schools because I don't know enough about it. But honestly, I, t to me, that seems appealing. Having different setups uh, for different kids, like school choice or whatever, you know, and I know this is political and I'm not informed enough to endorse charter schools. But to me, that makes sense. Like some kids are going to be more drawn to history-focused schools or sports-focused schools or arts-focused schools. And I think that's good. I think everyone should get exposure to everything. You know, I think some remedial education, learning math, learning learning about art history. I think everyone should learn about art history and poetry. And that's stuff that gets trash-talked in college. That, oh, I'm never going to use this. 
well, we need good citizens. You know, it's not just about you. That's why you're taking an art history class, even though you're never going to use it. And the thing is, is you might use it. Like I ended up that art history is an example for me. I was forced to take an art history and it ended up being a transformative class. Like that was where I really started coming to understand like gender inequality and sex inequality. One of the key purposes of prison is rehabilitation. Could you speak to some of the alternative forms of rehabilitation and how those might be better suited, especially when considering effects of mental health disorders on prisons? Yeah, so the idea that prisons, that the rehabilitation is a key purpose of prison, that's a controversial idea. Um, And it's new. Uh, The CDCR, California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, that R was only added in like 2005. And it was more of a PR move than anything, a money grab. They were losing a Supreme Court case. They were about to be forced to reduce their prison population by thousands of people. Um, They've been violating constitutional rights of people in prison. So they threw that R on there. Oh, we also re- rehabilitate people. And the prison guards hated it. Like they're, that's not our job or whatever. And I would agree with them. I don't think prison is the place to get rehabilitated. There's no theory of crime or punishment that suggests prisons are a good idea. You know, that's not a place you go get better. That's a place you go get worse. And so to me, like, I don't, I think rehabilitation is more like forced assimilation. Like we used to force natives through these assimilation schools. It's the same thing, but for poor people and racial minorities. Um, And then the other thing, anything to do with rehabilitation gets co-opted. So there was evidence-based practices that was like the hope for a while. Oh, we're going to base our practices on evidence. Now they just throw that word around. Like as someone who helps produce the evidence, they don't know what they're talking about. They don't even know how to understand academic research. Academics struggle to understand the practical implications of their work, but the people who practice don't understand academic work either, right? So now they're reading academic papers and oh, now I'm engaging in academic or evidence-based practices. Restorative justice, that was another kind of grassroots thing that people would talk about, that bringing the person who caused harm together with the person who was harmed and finding ways to restore them or whatever. You know, and that's like, if you're in a small community or whatever, that's like, okay, that makes sense. Or if you're talking about like a workplace where people are going to have to work together or something, but it's fine that trying to integrate that into a prison system with 2 million people in it. And, and that's just incarcerated people. There's like 6 million people on probation and parole. Don't quote me on this, that, but it's something like that, 6 million people on probation and parole. So it's like, how are you going to get... And what they do is they bring in prosecutors, right? It, they like institutionalize it. And that's not what restorative justice was ever about, right? The idea was that you're going to make people whole or whatever. If this is happening in a courtroom and there's a prosecutor there, you're not making anyone whole. Um, so like all these different things, abolition, like the ad- idea of abolishing prisons, that gets co-opted. So you have people who help build the prison system now talking about abolishing prisons because they're interested in ankle monitoring or whatever. They've moved on to the next thing. And so it's anytime the government or like groups come up with these ideas for rehabilitation and the government gets in on it, it ends up getting watered down and becomes worthless. There's these vocational education programs. So California pays for vocational education programs in prison. So like um, electronics, masonry, um, carpentry, that kind of stuff. And I, I was working for, I, I was a research assistant for the Department of Education here at UC Davis, and we did an evaluation of those programs. So the government pays for these programs, and then every like five years or something, yet they pay for an evaluation to be done of the programs. 
So you go in, you look at everything that's being done and you interview the people who are taking the classes or whatever. And I'm interviewing people. They're like, I'm like, oh, so what are you hoping to get out of this class? I don't want to be here. I don't know why I'm here. <laughs> oh, well, how did you end up here? I was eligible. So they forced me in here or whatever. So like I'm talking, he's like, I'm 70. I'm not going to be a Mason when I get out. I'd, and so there's not enough people eligible for these programs because of disciplinary infractions or whatever. So if you have disciplinary infractions, you're not eligible for these vocational education programs. So anybody who's eligible, the prisons force into those classes so that they don't lose money for the classes. Because if those seats are empty, then they don't get the funding the next year. So it's, how is that ever going to work, right? Those people got rehabilitated or whatever. And then when it doesn't work, they're going to get blamed. But the teachers don't like their jobs. The people don't, the students don't know why they're in the classes. It's just like a racket. It's a way of like sending money into prisons. So I don't personally, like I don't, I don't ever fight for prisons getting more rehabilitation programs. I'm very suspicious of people who do, like they're obsessed with sending more money into prisons than are already there. Drug treatment, the drug, there's not a treatment program in the country that claims better than like a one in 18 success rate. And yet most people who get addicted to drugs recover from addiction. And most people who recover from addiction do it without any sort of formal treatment or 12 step programs or anything. And that's like, it's called natural recovery. You can look it up. It's the rule. And you'll, when you Google it, it'll say natural recovery is the rule, not an exception. Sometimes it'll say that in a paper that's still recommending people pursue treatment for some reason. That's like, we have it in our heads that if you get addicted, you need treatment. If, you, if you're struggling with mental illness, you have to go to a psychiatrist or whatever. That's not right. It's just like with any other sickness. Sometimes you should go to a doctor. Sometimes it's like take better care of yourself or whatever. And so for a lot of like addiction, you know, you're forcing people into these very expensive programs that don't work. They're going into these programs. They're being told they have an incurable disease, which is bullshit. You know, that's like one theory of addiction or whatever, but that's one profession's idea. Oh, it's a disease. And they're, we shouldn't put them in prison. They're diseased people. You know, that's not destigmatizing to call me a diseased person. It's almost a mental prison. What's that? It's almost a mental prison. Yeah. Well, it's a stigma. And yeah. yeah, you know, it's like a way of keeping people in check, making people feel like they're not good enough. And then it's a way, it's a, a way of like perpetuating an, in, an industry. Treatment programs are make a ton of money, even though they don't work. And that's insurance companies are required by the government to pay for treatment. And the government pays for a lot of treatment and they don't work. Most people recover and most people recover without treatment. It's just like on the face of it, it's irrational. And that's the way we're doing it. Yeah. I think there's a lot of cool evidence starting to support psychedelic therapies and how you could go get one, one or two treatments and be good for the rest of your life. So I think that will be hopefully adopted a lot more than it currently is. But again, did you, see, did you say they started the new Institute here? Yeah. yeah, we've actually talked to him. He's a little bit busy right now, but we're hoping to record with him coming up in the spring or maybe next year. How they advertised it. Imagine a world without mental illness, without Alzheimer's. Is that actually how they advertised yeah. it? <laughs> we took a step closer <laughs> to that world today by starting UC Davis's Institute of Psychedelics and whatever. Like, wow. Things yeah. here are changing. And I, I believe in it. There was I just watched a video with a Johns Hopkins doctor talking yeah. and he was yeah, the biggest you saw that video? Dude. Yeah. I don't know if I just have listened to different podcasts from Johns Hopkins and like the professors there. It's like Matt something or whatever is the Yeah, we'd have to look it up. We can link to it, but they have the biggest institute, I'm pretty sure, in all of the world right For now. Studies. Time. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, I just watched that too. And it's remarkable. See, and it's, it's surprising because it's, it's not surprised. So when I was a kid and did psychedelics the first time, mm-hmm. I woke up the next day and it changed my life, you know, and it was just like, I, I did it entirely recreationally. I had no idea. It was like, a would you therapy. say what you did? I, I mean, I did pretty much everything yeah. when I was a teenager. <laughs> yeah. The first time I did it, it was acid. Okay. But then it was like, I, you know, it was all recreational. It was like this underground thing to do or whatever. Me and my friends trip, we sat around and laughed all night or whatever. But I woke up the next day and I was aware that you could think about the world differently and it would still make sense. It was just like, you know, you could have a different perspective. And it was, I remembered thinking differently about everything around me. And yet then it was like back to how it was. And you realize like, these are all illusions. You know, this is the hallucination. Like this table is not solid. The only reason my hand doesn't pass through it is because it's moving too fast. <laughs> you know, it's like there's tons of space there. It's just they're all shaking yeah. around. The, the idea that it's solid, that's the hallucination. The idea that you are who you are and that's settled, that's the hallucination, right? Like you are malleable. And so I think sometimes you do these drugs and it helps you to see that. Did you have a similar experience with the Christian program you went through of reevaluating how you looked at life? For sure, yeah. Yeah, could you like unpack some of that? Yeah, you know, it's like talking about faith. I could, again, like talk, talking about my childhood, we could do a separate podcast yeah. about my bio and my feelings and religious views or whatever. I was an atheist most of my, so both my parents were Christians, mm-hmm. but just kind of a name only or whatever. Like by the time I was a teenager, I was like, that doesn't make any sense or whatever. So I, I, I thought of myself as like an atheist. It wasn't like, I didn't like religion or whatever. It was just, it didn't make sense. I thought I was like too smart or whatever. And then I was looking at seven years in prison and the only way I could get out of it was to go to this Christian program. And I had a Catholic girlfriend. Honestly, I was ready to go to prison. And she was like crying like, Zach, this is what I've been praying for. She like begged me to go. And I went back to my cell and I like got on my knees and prayed for the first time. And I felt stupid. I felt like I was praying to my ceiling of my cell or whatever. But the first thing I prayed for was to stop being terrible to that girl. Like she was like the only person that was still standing by me, but I had an anger problem and I would talk to her abusively. And that was like the first thing I started praying for. It's like, God, help me to stop hurting this girl. What's wrong with me or whatever. And like, I didn't feel like I was talking to anybody but I've been trying to control my anger my whole life and all of a sudden I could control it. And that was like the first thing where I was like, I started praying, just like, get me out of this trouble, God. And otherwise I'm never going to believe in you or something like that. It was entirely selfish. I was just like, okay, I'll try it. But then like the fact that I started being able to control my anger, that was the first thing. And then it was just like stuff, like one thing fell into place. Like I shouldn't have gotten to that program. There was people who like protested in court as I was being sentenced, the probation officer that did the pre-sentence investigation he like wanted me to go to prison. He was pissed that I wasn't going, uh, but I got in, you know, and it was like the fact that I was there felt like a miracle. I like that program's intense. So you wake up at six in the morning, you're supposed to pray for a half hour and then you go to breakfast and then whatever. You have cla- like chapel and devotions from 8 a.m. to like noon and then you do work study for a few hours and then you have nighttime services a lot. So you're like immersed in a very religious um, environment. But at the same time, it's like, half the people in that program. So it's a big program. It's the biggest network in the world. And then Minnesota's is one of the biggest in the network. There's like 500 people in it. Half the people there are diverted from the prison system. And then half the people who work there are graduates of the program. So like the second guy in command, like the deputy director, he was this like 
dude who'd been gutted. Like, he was a gang member. He's, I'll tell you when I knew I needed Jesus. It was when I was holding my intestines in my hands or whatever. <laughs> and it was, so it was like an intent, you know, it wasn't like yeah. the Christians riding around on bikes with Bibles coming up to your door or whatever. It was like people who lived the life or whatever. And so, you know, and I was in such a desperate place in life that like, I didn't think I was, I, it wasn't like I was like trying to make it and I just couldn't. It was like, I didn't ever think about making it. You know, there wasn't, I'm the only male on both sides of my family who ever graduated from high school. And so like everybody was like in and out of trouble or whatever. Nobody like goes to college. And so it wasn't like I was trying to make it. It was like, I couldn't picture a life different from the life I was living. But then, you know, I lost two of my siblings as a teenager. I lost a bunch of friends. I was like pretty unhappy. I thought I, I thought it was, I thought I was going to go out shooting with the cops, honestly, or die in prison or something. Um, and so to be in that program and to be given a life and a chance, like it was unreal, you know, I'd like to see things falling into place. And then the scriptures, like one of the things they do is they point you to the Bible. You know, they say, read it for yourself, see what you think. And then you read the Bible and there's all these Bible verses that the things I was struggling with, people in there struggle with it too. So the apostle Paul has this um, scripture. It was one of the first ones I memorized. It's Romans seven. I do not understand what I do for what I want to do. I do not do, but what I hate, this I keep on doing, right? And that's like addiction. I mean, that's like mm. what it's like to struggle with addiction. It's like, you don't want to do that and you do it anyway. Or same thing with my anger problems or whatever. It's like, I, I want to treat my girlfriend well. She's been there for me or whatever. Then I'm yelling at her for some reason, you know? And it was just like, so being surrounded by people who were experiencing the same things and then interpreting it in light of like scripture or whatever, it, it clicked for me at one point. I was like six months into the program I was sitting in chapel. I was reading my Bible. I always liked reading the Bible. I always liked reading in general. So like the Bible is like philosophy, history. So I, I always liked reading it anyway. And I was like sitting there reading my Bible and they were like singing. I, I like looked around at one point. And I was like, huh, I believe this stuff, you know? And it was just like, suddenly I like knew I was a Christian at that point. And then I spent five years as a Christian where it just like, that was my life. Um, and, and it was a good time for it to happen. You know, like I'd been selling drugs like I never became a big timer. Like I don't, I don't try to say that, but I did all right for myself. You know, I was like <laughs> mid timer. Like I was young. I was still like coming up or whatever. And so then I read um, Ecclesiastes, and it talks about pursuing like all the good things in life and how it's all ultimately meaningless or whatever. And I'd had that experience. You know, it's like I was street rich, which is basically poor. You know, and but I have a backpack full of money as a teenager. It makes you feel rich. And yet I was miserable, you know, and then like, I couldn't trust most of my friends. I was like an, un I was in an unhappy place in life. So by the time I got to Teen Challenge and started reading this stuff, I was in a place to hear it and receive it. And I bought into that. Uh, there's another Bible verse, uh, not only so, but we also rejoice in our suffering for we know suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character and character produces hope. So they're taking people who are coming out of really desperate circumstances and saying like, that wasn't a waste. It wasn't all wasted. There's a purpose for it. And that's such a powerful message. You know, if you're 50, 60, 70 years old trying to recover from drug addiction and they tell you like, there's nobody who 50, 60, 70 year olds will listen to besides you. You need to get on your feet so you can speak to them. God has a plan for you. You're, you need to fill it, you know? And so like, that was the message. It was very empowering. This is 2005, 2006. So nobody cared about people in the prison system. They talked about rescuing us from the state. 
you know, that was like the tone is like the state doesn't care about you. Your fellow citizen doesn't care about you. We're going to save you or whatever. And, the, and so it was just like that environment. It was very empowering. I felt very loved. Um, you know, I, meaning, I needed meaning and purpose in my life, I think. I think that filled a big place in it. And then it helped me to see stuff like living for other people. It's a selfish act. You know, like when you're self-centered, like if I were to like mean to one of you, that's not going to work out in the long run. It's like, even if I can get one over on you, you're going to be mad at me, you know? And then like, you're going to treat me poorly or someone else is going to find out. And so it's just like, I don't know, realizing that, that like I find joy in helping other people, you know? And that's something that I, I, I still hold, even though I, I don't identify as a Christian anymore. Um, I still, a lot of those values were values that I wouldn't have picked up otherwise. And they were very good for not pursuing money. You know, it was like, I was selling drugs, trying not to be poor again. Like that was like, and I, I don't want to be poor again, but I also know that money doesn't bring happiness, you know? And that's something that like, as a Christian, like that, that's not what you're going to get your ultimate satisfaction from, you know? So it's like not wrong to pursue things that make you happy, but what ultimately is going to satisfy you. And that was a message I got as a Christian, and I think I've carried that into my life now. That's amazing. And could you talk a little bit more about the role of vocabulary in that program and how that played into the empowerment? Yeah, so that was, and I was a communication studies major, so that was what my undergraduate research was on, or that I started with as like thinking about the different ways that program talks about you compared to what they talk about you in jail or prison or even other treatment centers, right? They're calling you a Christian or a child of God or a soldier for Christ, like all this brother, like that's another thing, brother, I'm glad you made it. Like that sort of language as opposed to like, you have an incurable disease, but don't worry, it can be managed. You have to go to AA meetings for the rest of your life, right? Like there's something wrong with you. And they would say that like, yeah, there's something wrong with you, but there's something wrong with all of us. We're all broken. You know, we're all sinners, wretched sinners deserving the flames of hell. Like that's all of us, right? So it's like, whatever I did doesn't make me worse than you. And so like just kind of that kind of language, the assumptions they make about you, addiction, you're not an addict, you're a Christian or a sinner, right? Like you might be a sinner, not a Christian yet, but like addiction is just like any other sin, you just repent of it. And that's how I overcame my addiction. I just repented of it. I, you know, I, th in that program, they talk about addiction for like a month or two, and then they don't talk about it anymore. You're in there for 13 months, but they're, it's a discipleship program. They're teaching you to be a Christian. And so it's like they, and that's what they say is like, we don't want to make drugs bigger than they are. You know, like if all you get out of this program is sober, you miss the point. I'm like, that's just, it's a very different perspective than what you hear in most treatment centers, which is like, you have to obsess over your sobriety or whatever. And it's, that didn't appeal to me at all, you know? And that's like staying so, like I'm unhappy when I'm sober. And I went seven years sober uh, after I finished that program. I didn't drink, I didn't smoke weed, nothing. And I was miserable. I, was, I, I wasn't miserable, I was anxious. I struggled with anxiety and I didn't know that was a disorder. I didn't know I had anxiety. I just thought that was what it was like to be sober. And so, you know, the way people think about this stuff, like sobriety, recovery, like these words are so loaded and that program is just, it changes it. You know, it's like, you're human, you're human. Like it's sanctification, you're trying to be more perfect, like Jesus. Uh, so that, that was that exposure. Then I got this uh, college and I'm a student, you know? And it was like, I did not feel comfortable in classrooms. Like when I went to college in 2011, nobody was calling themselves first gen students or whatever. Like I, that just meant your parents were poor. You know, I thought everybody I went to school with was like privileged or whatever. And yet, like this identity as a student, you know, just like I am a student and I would feel that sometimes when I'm sitting at home doing 
uh, homework. For some reason, eating grapes while doing homework felt like really normal to me. I used to eat grapes. Like, ah, I'm a student now or whatever. <laughs> um, and that, that was something that like just the way I would like talk, like I'm a student, you know, and then I, I talk and then people would treat me like a student. They wouldn't treat me like a drug addict. Whereas if you're in a treatment center, they're treating you like a drug addict. And so I think that was a big part of it. Just the, the way that language creates our identities, including our senses of self and identity. So when you start to look towards how we should start changing some of our systems, what are some other things that you would like to see change besides just the vocabulary and humanizing individuals from these backgrounds? So like reforming the criminal justice system as a whole? Yeah. What are some other steps you think we should take? So I think that a lot of people who do this work, they come up with policy recommendations. They're like, oh, we need to have risk assessment instead of cash bail or whatever. And I really try to stay away from that because you can do the right thing wrong, right? Like you can put in a restorative justice program and then have prosecutors involved or whatever. And it's not Almost every government go. action. Yeah. Thank you. You know, and that's, so like, I don't really have a lot to, like, I know that we're going to have public policies and we're going to have people like doing this stuff or whatever. I don't feel called to control other people's lives like that or to prescribe like, this is how, this is the law that everyone should obey, but some principles, accountability and transparency first. You know, I just think there's no way this is going to work if the government's not accountable to us. It's just like you need to be able to look at what they're doing. Okay, most people aren't paying attention for most of the time because it should be working well. When it's not working well, anybody should be able to look and see what's going on, right? Not everyone's going to be able to understand all the nuances, but having access to data, um, having access to the reports that they put out, like that report I put out about the vocational education program. Yeah. As I was doing that, I found all the other reports that had been published. They all say the same thing. Every five years, they say the same thing. The program's inefficient. There's people in classes that they shouldn't be in or whatever. And so it's like, I'm glad that you can see those reports. That is a, it, it's good. It's good that I know that, right? And I'm able to tell you and we put it on a podcast and everybody knows like these vocational education programs in California prisons aren't working and everybody who evaluates it knows it. So that's like transparency, accountability. You know, when schools are failing, who's responsible for that, right? Like you get, you have the school to prison pipeline, Who's responsible for that? I mean, who's doing it besides the teachers and administrators in those schools? It's, it's just like the government employees are just washing their hands of all these problems. And meanwhile, they're earning a living and not doing their jobs. If this was a business, it would have gone out of business, you know, and that's like true of a lot. And, you know, I don't think the government, I think that's kind of the role of government sometimes is to do stuff that's not necessarily profitable. But our education system is stupid and nobody thinks it's like a good system at all. So it's, you know, transparency, accountability, I think those are just like bedrock. Anytime we see politicians, government agencies working against that, we should all be outraged no matter what the issue is. Um, focus on reducing harm. So like, what are we going to put people in prison for? You know, it's like, if we're going to have law enforcement, we're going to have armed government agents out there doing something, what should they be doing? You know, and I would say they should be protecting us, stopping us from hurting each other, uh, addressing when harm is done, that they find the person and bring them to justice or whatever. And that's just not what's going on, right? Our prisons are full of people who didn't hurt anyone. There's all kinds of victimless crimes that are worthy of putting people in prison for. 
everyone in prison is poor. You know, it's like 90 something percent of the people in prison are poor. That's not a coincidence. It's, so who's ending up in, is it the people who are harming people or just the poor people, black people, brown people, disabled people, short people? I haven't seen any studies on that, but I guarantee short men are overrepresented in prisons. It's any sort of disadvantage in our society increases the chances you're going to end up incarcerated. I think we should look at harm. I think we should, if we should, if something's not harmful, we shouldn't, the government should have a role in it. And that's cannabis. It's just like, you can find some dubious correlations between secondhand bong smoke and increased rates of bronchitis among teenagers or whatever they're finding now. But it's like, that's very dubious. You know, ibuprofen kills thousands of Americans every year and nobody gets upset about that. So it's like, yes, these things can be dangerous, but the government doesn't have to have a role in everything. And, and if stuff's not harmful, that's something they should be backing out on. And then when harm is done, they should go after it. 80% of all sexual assaults in our country are never even reported. 1% of all people who commit sexual assault will eventually be convicted of a felony. And you have to be convicted of a felony to be sent to prison. So it's like 1% of all people who commit sexual assault are convicted of a felony. Even fewer than that are being sent to prison. Who's in prison? So it's, you know, we're filling up our prisons with people who are not the ones causing harm. I'd also uh, mention uh, political corruption and white collar crime. Uh, we had a global economic meltdown that was related to white collar crime and, and government agencies not doing their job as regulators. Nobody went to prison for that. And now investigations of white collar crime are at an all time low. That doesn't make any sense. And that's like, we are all gonna suffer. It's, it's not as scary when a white collar criminal steals people's life savings, but a lot of those people killed themselves. You know, it's like, it's devastating for the people who are losing their life savings or investments or whatever. And yet, you know, as the American public, as a global public, it's not scary, so we don't focus on it. And so I think like, we all need to start thinking about that, that kid who was beating people up in high school, that's harmful, that has to be do something to be done about it. Should we fill our news waves with it? You know? And, I don't know. It's like there, yeah. this is a harmful thing, but it's probably not the most harmful yeah. thing. I want to highlight the white collar crime again, because if you look at the 2008 crisis, which I'm assuming that's what you're referencing, when the greed and corruption of the bankers who gave out mortgages to the people who should not have had them, and they wrote the interest rates in a way that would later completely drain them of all their money, the number one thing it seems like you were talking about that predicts crime is lack of wealth and lack of resources and putting people in hard situations. So you could easily argue that those people causing a global crisis end up causing the most crime that people want to punish and people, what people think of as crime. So the fact that they're not going to jail is even more ridiculous. I think you're absolutely right. No, and that's, you know, that, so I don't tend to study like corporate crime, white collar crime or whatever. I, I read about it in my free time and I, I want to focus on it more as I move forward because it's kind of the flip side. So I, I've been thinking a lot about Paradise, California. Mm -hmm. um, it's a town that burned down. Uh, PG&E yep. was found guilty of 84 counts of manslaughter because they weren't maintaining their power lines. One of the power lines fell, started a fire. Within an hour, it hit paradise. Within an hour, it burned the entire town down, killed 84 people, and 40,000 people became homeless. You know, and that's like, 
There was an outpouring of sympathy for those people who become homeless, but now already the sympathy is waning. The people in Chico are complaining about the driving up the rental prices or whatever. 10 years, 20 years from now, those kids who became homeless when their house burned down because of PG&E or whatever, nobody's going to remember that. It's because of PG&E. And PG&E paid a fine. You know, nobody went to prison. It's just like, and, and then, I mean, there's a news, I think you mentioned this, that ABC 10 or something did a series on the political corruption and sweetheart deals and everything that went into how does PG&E kill 84 people and pay a fine and yet we have a bunch of people in prison who haven't ever hurt anybody yeah, and that's you know I, I think you're right that a lot of those 40,000 people are going to struggle for their li entire life and then some of them it's intergenerational that their kids and their children's children will suffer because they lost their house and they didn't they didn't have house insurance or, you know, the breadwinner got killed in the fire or whatever other unfortunate incident happened. Are there mechanisms that you've seen to hold those people accountable? It seems like when you look at white collar crime and people at the very top that are moving the strings around in a way that if they make a mistake and it impacts a million people to where those million people live a vastly different life, there's not much we can do other than be mad about it or be frustrated is there something be mad and be frustrated um you know get involved like a, a, a functioning democracy won't keep working without a functioning justice system you know and that's you're absolutely right i don't think anybody thinks money doesn't influence uh the criminal legal system i got out because i paid for a private lawyer my public defender was going to let me go to prison i was a drug dealer um, I had drug dealer friends. I sold some of my stuff and I had some friends give me some money or whatever and I bailed out and I turned myself in and if I hadn't been able to bail out and turn myself in, Hennepin County where the program was located wouldn't have accepted me because I would have been convicted of too many crimes and I would have went to prison for seven years. So it's like in the back of my mind as I was going through this Christian program, I knew that, yeah, maybe God saved me. So did my money. You know, it was like, and if I hadn't been selling drugs, like if I'd just been a typical street criminal, quote unquote, or whatever, I'd be in prison. And a bunch of people who weren't doing as well as me, all my friends went to prison, all of them. You know, it's just like, I don't have any friends from when I was a on the street anymore. They're all dead or they've been cycling in and out of prison. Um, yeah, no, and that's like at the bottom, you know, it's like the drug dealers can afford lawyers and so you might get out or you can afford bail so then you're not sitting in jail as you're fighting your case because if you're sitting in jail fighting your case then you're going to be more likely to accept a plea because you want to get out of jail or whatever so no money absolutely influences our uh, criminal legal system and that's there's not rich people in prison right there's it's like less than one percent of all people in prison are not poor or not yeah, I shouldn't quote ex an exact statistic. Yeah. It's almost all poor people in prison. That's not a coincidence. Yeah. So we've talked about how a lot of personal responsibility and reframing a lot of the rhetoric around crime and also understanding that crime is a symptom, not the cause, is kind of how we need to move forward. But a lot of people also point to different areas of the world and how they treat crime. Could you speak on how comparing the U.S. to Nordic countries is probably not the best way to look at criminal justice reform? Yeah. I mean, comparing the United States to any country isn't the best yeah. way. To, we're really an exceptional country. Like, and, you know, I don't, we are an exceptional country. I'll just say, like, we're different. Every other country, it's like, 
their people were there for thousands of years. We're a country of immigrants, you know, and that's like every generation, there's like people coming from different countries, coming here, trying to make a better life for themselves. And then we're all here living together, trying to get our best life or whatever. And we're in conflict, you know, and that's, so, and, it, and it's a beautiful thing. I mean, it depends on how you look at it. It's like, w- there's a lot of turmoil and it's uncomfortable sometimes, but it's like California is incredible. Like going into high-end restaurants and seeing like not all white people, pretty sure that's what the founders had in mind is, is like people from all walks of life being able to do well for themselves or whatever. There's not another country that was born in similar context as ours. And so it's, it's really not similar in any to any country. And then the Nordic thing, that's something that like academics are really on right now. And it always seemed weird to me because that's like, we're dealing with a country with a prison system that's plagued by racism, you know, and I, 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 it's more than just racism, but it very like, clearly had something to do with the civil rights movement. Racism. You said we as in America, correct? Yeah, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I just want to clarify that because we're talking about Nordic countries as well. Yeah, so, so like, then we're looking at Nordic countries, yeah. which are the exact opposite. They're all white, right? And that's like, they're not just white, they're Norwegian. They've been there for a thousand years, their family or whatever. It's like 80% of people in Norway, I think it is, it might be Finland, are ethnic, and that's probably the same, 80% of the people in the country are ethnic Norwegians. That's like their whole families from that country. And so it's like the whitest place on earth we could look, and we're looking to them as a model. That doesn't make any sense. I went to a conference one time, and I asked about this. There was a prominent academic um, who had been going to Norway with a team uh, from the United States, and they're redesigning a prison in Pennsylvania, little Scandinavia. This is something people could look up if they wanted to. Um, and I asked him, you know, uh, that question, like, is that really a good idea to be looking at the whitest place on earth for ideas about how to reform a prison system that's being p- accused of being plagued with racism? And he said, well, you know, there's places in the United States that are not uh, very diverse. They're mostly white, like Minnesota, northern Minnesota, where you're from, and parts of Maryland or whatever. And it, White people anywhere in the world are not the same as white people everywhere in the world. You know, that's a white supremacist idea. And then one of his assistants said, well, and actually, although the country's very white, the prison, about 30% of the prison, people in prison are immigrants. Well, <laughs> I have another question. <laughs> Doesn't that mean they're having the same problems we are except with immigrants? And, she, and she, yeah, you know, that's exactly it. And it turns out every, all those European countries they all have huge numbers of immigrants in their prisons. Switzerland, it's like 70% of the people in their prison are immigrants, you know, and that's, so yeah, other countries are struggling with this stuff too, you know, and when you're talking about a country that's like, all of them are ethnic Norwegians, so when you're going to make a prison that's as close to home life as possible, that's different from in the United States, where we have Somali immigrants and Hmong immigrants and African Americans and white people of all kinds or what. You know, what is normal life? How do you make prison more similar for all those groups? And, you know, I'd say you don't. Like a lot of those people in the Norwegian prisons are immigrants who are being forced to live a lifestyle that's not theirs and they're calling it humane. So just, you know, it's the other thing is like the size. I think think it's Norway. Their prison has 4,000 people in it. You know, all their prisons, it's like... (laughs) <laughs> North Dakota's prison has 4,000 people in it, you know, and that's like, nobody thinks a lot about North Dakota prisons. <laughs> like it's just, it's, and so it's like not comparable, 2.2 million people in American jails and prisons. It's a different thing. Um, so I think 
it, it's good to look at other countries. It's good to look at the good and bad other people are doing. In the Philippines right now, they're going through a harsh, t- tough on crime against drug users. They're killing drug addicts in the streets or whatever. Um, so like that's, and, and I had a student here at UC Davis one time. I, I said something about the Philippines and she came up and she said, you know, they try to make Duterte look bad because he's killing people, but he's actually only killing the drug dealers. <laughs> it's like, well, as a former drug dealer, <laughs> I still find that problematic that you think it's okay. I could have just been killed in the streets or whatever. And so, you know, looking at what other people do, because that's what's happening in the United States, I would say is brutal. I think it's one of the most social, important social problems of our time that you can't take people and put them in cages and chains. That's unacceptable. You know, and you make up all these reasons to justify it. They don't, they're not going to care about those reasons 50 years from now. People around the world looking at us are calling out our hypocrisy. This is supposed to be the land of the free. So um, I don't think there's a way out of it by just importing some other country's way of doing things. Um, I think we're going to have to innovate our way out of it. You know, that's, we are an exceptional country. We do blaze our own trails for better or worse. And I don't think this is going to be any different. We have gone back and forth criticizing both the Republicans and the Democrats for a lot of their actions and how they are really quite similar in their view on crime. Could you touch on the California justice system and how it's not nearly as progressive as most of these progressive or liberal Californians think it is? Yeah. Um, so I would say it's not nearly as progressive as a, what a lot of Californians think it is, but I would also say progressive doesn't necessarily, I mean, I think progressives helped cause mass incarceration, that they really fueled it. And that's, these are just words, right? Progressive, conservative, liberal. So it's like, what do they all mean? You know, people tend to start thinking like liberal, good, conservative, bad or whatever, but it's, so in a lot of ways, the Nazis were a progressive group, right? Like they were embracing science, cutting edge science, eugenics, like the idea of master races. That was something we pioneered here. That's that PBS documentary, The Eugenics Crusade, uh, talks a lot about that. Um, They were masters of the media, right? That's commonly associated with progressives or whatever. So it's like progressive is just a term that like suggests like thinking about the future or whatever. That caused a lot of the problems, right? The eugenics, this idea of eugenics, that there's superior and inferior biology. That suggests there's such a thing as master races. That was, There was science behind Hitler's ideas about a master race. It was the same science we were using here to justify designing our school systems, A, B, C, D, F, like that letter rating. That was like sorting children into the geniuses and the idiots or whatever. So a lot of these ideas came straight from... I mean, they didn't come from Nazi Germany. We were sharing them, right? Like Germany at the time was a leading philosophical center or whatever. So they, that idea of like progressives, it was the people on the cutting edge of science that had the most influence in society, just like today. So it's their ideas that caused the problems. Um, Tony Platt, he's a, uh, he started at Berkeley. He's had a career mostly in the barriers at San Jose State, San Jose State for most of his career. I think he wrote a book called the Child Savers, The Invention of Delinquency. I think it was published in like 1969. And that was the first book, I, th- I think it was the first book that was really pointing out that it's, it's a left and right thing, that it's not just tough on crime conservatives or whatever. 
It's also these like people wanting to save the immigrant children. What's wrong with them? Or the native children? Like, look at these savages, right? That was like people wanting to do the right thing or whatever. So that is um, about progressive. That like just being progressive doesn't mean you're not causing the problems or whatever. But then California's prisons are among the worst in the country, you know, and I don't even know how else to say that. Like in Minnesota, growing up, I heard you don't want to go to prison in Texas, Louisiana, or California, you know? And so it's like, then I come here and people don't know that their prisons are brutal, among the most brutal in the country. They're, they're releasing people right now or like reducing the size of the prison population. And people think that's because we're a progressive state. That's because California's prisons were violating the constitutional rights of the incarcerated people for decades, and they couldn't stop because of overcrowding. So the federal government, they lost a Supreme Court case. The federal government took over California's prison system. I think there's still a federal controller in charge of California's healthcare system and the prison system and forced them to reduce the prison population because it was over 200% capacity. So now they're releasing people and people are criticizing these liberal reforms or whatever. These aren't liberal reforms. This is the federal government forcing the state to release people from prison because they were violating their constitutional rights. Californians don't know that. You know, and I think that's media complicity. I think like media's job is government accountability. That's like why we have a free press to hold the government accountable. They did not hold the government accountable. Instead, they went full tabloid, gun wielding baddie kills four or whatever. That's what they were trumpeting through the whole uh, drug war. I mean, and still do today. Meanwhile, California's prisons were violating constitutional rights. That's just the kind of thing the press should have looked into, and they didn't. And so then when the California loses a Supreme Court case and it comes out that they've been violating rights and the newspapers didn't look into it, they didn't cover that either. So now nobody knows that California lost the Supreme Court case and they see us closing prisons and they think it's because of progressive reforms. We're building jails. Jails are over full right now. So as they release people from prison, they just go back to the county level and fill up the county jails. So it's a lot of the time the people get who get blamed for the war on drugs and crime, like I talked about earlier, Nixon and Reagan, they were both from California. Reagan had a sociology degree. He had a bunch of sociologists in his administration. You know, it's like this idea that like these are just some backwoods hicks or whatever. Everybody loved Reagan, you know, and that's He's a child of California. Like a lot of California leads the country in a lot of ways for better or worse. You talked a little bit or a lot of it rather about how it took generations for our prison system to become the powerhouse that it is. Could you talk about why reform will take generations? Yeah. I mean, everything's generational, right? So it's like in generational lines are just artificial, like baby boomers built the system we have, but so did everyone else. You know, it's just like we, we come up with these categories and this is baby boomers and this is millennials or whatever. Those are fake lines. It's just like now, you know, the millennials are the ones who are running everything. And that's my generation, your Gen Z, I'm guessing. It's, it's just like these lines are, you, once you turn 18 and start voting, are those my prisons more than your prisons? Are police, my police more than your police? So it's, it is, Everything's all tied together. There aren't these fine lines, right? People talk about Gen Z or millennials being softer than their parents. I don't see that, you know, like the way we're acting toward people for opiates. Like we can talk about a double standard um, with opiates compared to the way we treated crack cocaine, but there's white poor people being brought into prisons in much 
higher rates because of the opiates now. And so I don't see it at, you know, the mass shooting thing, that's Gen Z is all really wrapped up about that. They want to take everyone's guns away. I mean, that's obviously an overstatement. I don't know what your views are on guns or whatever, but I've never heard people call for taking everyone's guns away like I've been hearing lately in mm -hmm. California. It's Angela Davis has a, a book called Freedom is a Constant Struggle. And I think that's right. It's just like the founders that the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. It's just, it's not a thing that you can get complacent on because if you get complacent, there's people who are not complacent and they're seeking power and profit and prestige. Um, you know, and it's like, I'm not saying everyone should join the Republican party or Re Democrat party. In fact, I'm just, don't join the Democrat or Republican <laughs> party, you know, uh, but do get engaged. You know, this is all of our struggle. And, and I think the part of, kind of the paradox is, is like when you engage with these issues that are hard, you know, there's, there's times with my work that when I'm talking about it, I've been choked up. I've been choked up at professional conferences where I'm presenting. And then I remember something, somebody I was interviewing told me and it, I get choked up. It's hard work. I sleep better at night doing stuff that makes me feel like I'm doing the right thing or whatever. And I think that's the paradox is just get involved in the stuff you care about, you know, and, and you should care about everything. That's where it's like, you can't treat every issue or not, you know, for me, it's the drug war, mass incarceration, animal rights have mattered more and more to me lately. And it's like, I'm not out there joining PETA or anything, but it's whenever people ask me about my opinion about animal rights, I say, I think what we're doing is terribly wrong. You know, we're killing ourselves and we're torturing animals. Um, so I think it's just like, whatever it is, I think we need to be engaged and it's gonna be an ongoing thing. Teach your children, uh, educate yourself, educate your children, teach them to read, teach them to read biography. Um, yeah. I think that's a really important message, especially for our younger audience. There's what seems like a trend to not care and it's cool to not care. And I think it's really important for everyone, but especially the younger generation to care. Like, there is a lot of pride that can come from caring about something that might end up being wrong. It might not end up being the right thing for you to have cared about, but putting yourself out there and taking a stance, I think is really valuable. I agree. I just came across this quote from uh, on Antonio Gramsci talking about the indifferent. He said, I hate the indifferent or whatever. And he's talking about like, there's these people who are just indifferent. You know, they don't care either way. And they're the problem because they're the ones who let these laws be passed that only a revolution is going to repeal. They let people take power that only mutiny can take out of power. You know, so it's like all they had to do was care. All they had to do was pay attention. And it might not have gone that way, you know, and instead they didn't care. You know, and that's, I do, I do talk to, I mean, a lot of the student, the younger people I talk to, I talk to through my work. So they tend to care or whatever that's it's like a selection thing but one of the most depressing things or disheartening things i think is teaching here at the university of california and talking to students and then like seeing that they don't think they can make a difference you know and it's i was born into dirt and thought i was going to change the world and then it's like the more I go through life, the more I feel like, wow, I can really change the world, you know? And it's like, now I talk to people, I'm like, pretty sure are going to change the world. And they listen to my ideas, you know? And it's like, I think that means I'm changing the world, you know, it's just like influencing all these people. And then I talk to students and they're like, well, well, you know, what are we supposed to do? 
I don't even know what to say to you. <laughs> like, you're at the <laughs> University of California, and you don't think you can make a difference. You know, people born into privilege, and I think that's it. If you're, if you're born into struggle, you know how to struggle. If you're born into privilege, you might not. And I think that's, I think that's what happened with the baby boomers. It was a comfortable generation. It allowed them to be apathetic. And I think apathy is an enemy of democracy. It's an enemy of the people. So for those who care on campus, how can they get involved? What are some of the projects you were working on to help formerly incarcerated people get an education and go through and get a college degree? So the form, work I'm doing with formerly incarcerated people is separate from my research in some ways. And mm -hmm. so that's like more my advocacy. So I have a few different things. So I'm always working with like five to 20 research assistants, depending on the quarter or whatever, on my uh, dissertation research, that's the age of mass incarceration. Uh, we didn't talk about that much, but that's, it's on age, formerly incarcerated older adults, right? Mm -hmm. So they're the people who kind of live through mass incarceration. So I'm always working on that and working with uh, research assistants on that. A lot of my work is community-based public scholarship, or it will be when I start publishing. Um, and that's like, uh, so I had a project on formerly incarcerated community college students. And so that's like, I, I mostly just hang out with them. I did end up interviewing a bunch of them, but I am a formerly incarcerated, or I was a formerly incarcerated community college student. Now I'm a formerly incarcerated doctoral student. Um, so that's a lot of my work is just engaging with the populations I'm studying rather than studying them like their lab rats or whatever. Um, I probably won't stay in academia. I'm probably going to go into business or community organizing or both. I think like uh, f housing for formerly incarcerated students. I might go into acquiring housing across the country for formerly incarcerated people. So I think it's really important to tie your ideas, like your intellectual development to stuff in the world and then write about it. So like with the housing, as I'm doing it, I plan to write about it to give other people ideas. Like, here's what I'm doing and this is why I'm doing it and how I'm doing it. And it's not just housing, right? It's like community development, um, thinking about how to improve the, the world around you. Um, so that's like the projects I'm working on. Like if people wanted to get involved, the first thing I'll say, inform yourself, you know, and that's not something joining my project, that's like read. Uh, biography, autobiography, watch documentaries, a uh, critical race theory. Uh, that, when I was reading critical race theory, so I, I started reading it before it became a thing that was like controversial or whatever. And it's like, why did they call this theory? This is just American history that they don't tell you. It's like, did this happen? Yes or no? If so, it's not theoretical, you know? And then a lot of it, it's just like the other side of history. You know, and it's like, yeah, they're humans who wrote that. Maybe they over, maybe they exaggerate some of it. Maybe they get some facts wrong or whatever. But some of that, it's like, once you read it, you can't think differently again. You know, it's just reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. I was reading that as a Christian in college and he's a Muslim, but he had a similar path in some ways. Like he was a street criminal who ended up going to prison. He had a religious conversion while he was there and he converted to Islam. And he had antipathy for white people. And when I read, it drips from the pages and I felt it. Like I felt bad that he would like hate me or whatever. But then you read his story and it's like, you understand why he's bitter toward white people. You know, it's like, yes, I think he's wrong. I don't think all white people are like that, but I understand why he doesn't know that or whatever. And so I think just exposing yourself to ideas that you wouldn't be exposed to otherwise. I think that's like the most important, do book clubs. Book clubs are revolutionary. Um, get a group of people who are interested in reading something controversial and read it and make that a habit. You know, I watch 
ancient history documentaries almost every night now. I, we just got a subscription to Masterclass. That's kind of expensive, but they're incredible. And it's like you can watch horror movies or true crime or some other trash or whatever. And I'm fine with like having guilty pleasures, of course. But for the most part, those it's junk food. It's like, yeah, junk food's fine every now and then. But if you eat that all the time, you're going to be sick. You know, what we're taking into our minds every day affects what comes out. And what we're taking in is trash that's being produced by the government, corporations. They do not have our best interests in mind. So that would be the first thing, just informing yourself. And that's like more than voting. Like I always tell people to vote. I don't know if that's a good idea. <laughs> like, a whole bunch of uninformed people going voting. I think that might not be the path to forward or whatever. I Ultimately, inform yourself and vote. But um and then the stuff I'm working on. So Underground Scholars is a UC-wide organization for formerly incarcerated students. So it started at UC Berkeley in 2013 by Danny Murillo and uh, a couple other people. Um, Danny spent seven years in solitary confinement before he got out and started at Berkeley and then started Underground Scholars. And so that was like knowing the history of some of the people who were involved in Underground Scholars. Um, like I, I went through, going through college, I'd meet people sometimes who find out about my background they'd be like oh yeah i did a little time or i got in some trouble too or whatever <laughs> but then it's always like some professor who like got caught with drugs when he was a teenager and snitched on all his friends and got out <laughs> or like somebody who got a dui in college or something and then his dad bailed him out or whatever and it's like that wasn't what i can relate to and so underground scholars is a uh, organization that was started 2013 berkeley now we have chapters on all uc campuses i'm the co-founder of the chapter here at uc davis uh, we just got money from the government to support programs. So we're going to have paid staff and services at all the UC campuses for formerly incarcerated people pretty soon. Um, I'll be working on that. I have another project, We Are All Students, which is similar. It's looking at digital and social media stuff, though, educational content. Um, I, I teach a first-year seminar with a co-founder of Underground Scholars, another formerly incarcerated doctoral student, Axel. It's called Health Inequality in the Wars on Drugs and Crime. We teach it with my spouse. She's a physician and a scientist at the UC Davis Medical Center. And we teach that every quarter. Uh, we do different like themes or whatever, but people could take that. It's a first-year seminar, but I think people in all uh, classes can take it. Um, the Age of Mass Incarceration, that's my research project that I mentioned that I have research assistance on and that'll be an ongoing thing probably amazing you mentioned not looking at these groups of people like lab rats however you did mention one study involving lab rats that i think we should bring up and that is the rat park study could you talk a little bit about that and where some of those results complain to our understanding of providing options for those that are at a higher risk of committing crime yeah, so that part about who's at higher risk of committing crime, thats it's tricky. It's like, what are we calling crime? And then what causes people to do those things, right? So what causes people to, to rape are, is different from what causes them to smoke pot. Or if you're saying that's a white person only drinking fountain, you know, like what causes a yeah. person of color to use that drinking fountain is different. So it's a little tricky. But the idea of the Rat Park experiment, it came out of the drug war. So the government used to do these, or they'd fund experiments and then promote them where they'd show rats in cages and they'd put a rat in a cage and they'd put cocaine-laced water, heroin-laced water in there. And then the rat would, they can self-administer it and they would self-administer the cocaine-laced water till they died or whatever. And they'd say, look, at drugs make you so irrational. Once you start using, you won't stop till you die. There's this uh, psychologist in Canada, Bruce Alexander, 
he saw that and he's like, you know, if you lock me in a cage with nothing but cocaine, I'd do that shit till I died too. And he's like, and so he came up with this experiment. He called it the rat park and he like gave him options. So instead of just the, a cage, he, he put in food and water, gave them mates so they can have sex and gave them toys so they can play with them. And he showed if you give rats options, like everything they desire, they don't touch the cocaine-laced water, more uh, the heroin-laced water. In fact, you can get them addicted to drugs. So they do, this is the stuff about animal rights. They do all kinds of crazy stuff to animals. They get animals addicted to drugs and then make them withdraw from the drugs to see what it's like or whatever. So you can get these rats addicted to drugs, put them in the rat park and they don't touch the cocaine-laced water. That was repeated by Carl Hart. He's a psychopharmacologist at Columbia University. And he did, uh, he's got a TED talk people could look up. It's called, We Need to Quit Abusing Drug Users or something like that, Carl Hart. And he did the same experiment. He read that and did, did it in a lab in New York City with humans. So he would have method, people who are addicted to meth or different drugs come into his lab and give them a hit of meth. And then he'd say, you want another hit or $5? You want another hit or $10? You want, so they're coming down, right? They took their hit. Now they're coming down and he's offering them another hit or money. And he shows they take the money. And the more money you, in, as you increase the amount, more and more people take the money until nobody takes the drug anymore. That's economic rationality. You know, that's a rational behavior. And that totally contradicts a lot of what we're taught about drugs that, well, once you start taking the drug, the drug takes over. Once you start taking a drug, every time you take the drug, it's another calculation, right? And yes, you become physically dependent on some stuff, but gambling is addictive. There's no drug involved. Sex is addictive. Pornography is addictive. All these stuff are addictive. No drugs involved. And so uh, the, the point of those experiments is it shows if you give people attractive options, they choose the attractive option. Like it's drugs are rational. If you're miserable smoking, I, I've smoked weed. I don't think there has been, and I, I could be wrong, but I don't think there's been a single time I smoked weed and didn't feel better after. That's remarkable. You know, there's like not many things in life that are that consistent. So the idea that like somebody's smoking weed every day or smoking weed all day every day, oh, that's pathological. They have a disorder. That's not your decision to make. You know, that's that person making decisions. And if they're not causing any harm to other people, why do you even care? Um, so I, that's the that's rat park. I love yeah. that experiment. That's a great experiment. It seems that like most of these things are very similar to health. Cause I have a big passion for health and I see a lot of this as the, our healthcare system treats illnesses and they don't do anything to prevent illnesses for the most part. And very similar approaches are being taken with the criminal justice system. As we try to put band-aids on people committing crimes and doing horrible things or sometimes not horrible things and taking a step back and understanding why people are doing certain things, the situations they are put in and how we can change those things to prevent crime from like the bottom up versus the top down is kind of how we need to move forward. And that rat park study is a huge part of that. You're just providing those options, giving people like a way out. I agree. You know, I think humans have a survival instinct. And that's something that like all these good liberals, good progressives who want to fix everybody, right? The conservatives, they want to leave. And I don't mean to like protect conservatives or like defend conservatives, but for and conservatives called for the war on drugs just as much, which again, that's hypocrisy. Like there's nothing 
there's not much bigger government than armed government agents patrolling the street or having a military that's bigger than the next 30 militaries combined. That's pretty big government. Half the federal budget goes to the military. That's big government. So, But for the most part, conservatives would be more okay with leaving people alone. Liberals are the ones who always want to fix everyone, you know, and that's like when you have a teenager who's struggling at home, now he's addicted to drugs, dealing with mental illness or whatever. It's just like, that's a complicated problem. And it's not everybody's place to fix everybody else. And I think a lot of the time, if you let humans, if you give people attractive options, um, they'll thrive. You know, they'll choose the more attractive option. We have a survival instinct and you can get depressed. You can become self-destructive. That's not normal for most people, even people in hard circumstances. They have a tendency to try to do better for themselves. As we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to mention? Yeah, I mean, kind of going off of that, I would say, you know, one of the things I, I talk about, like I said, I don't have a lot of policy recommendations specifically for the criminal legal system. I would say policy recommendations are like, build parks and libraries and community arts programs and bike paths and programs to get city kids out into the mountains or out into the fields or whatever. And that's like creating a park. I, I live in a gentrifying neighborhood. It's a lower income neighborhood. And there's this skate park nearby that's just always over full of kids, you know, and it's like, it's an incredible skate park. I wish I had something like that when I was a kid. And then it's when you see it, when you build a skate park, and then you see it fill up with kids, that signs to build another skate park. You know, it's just like, oh, that was a good idea. Let's do another one. You know, and that's like creating that park for the children to thrive. Some of them are going to go on and become coders. Some are going to go on an arts program. Some of them are going to struggle throughout their lives, you know, and that's like the sad reality is like, there are people who are not going to make it, but there's people who are born with physical disabilities and that's a sad reality too, you know, and we accommodate them, the affordable, or the Americans with Disabilities Act, I think that's a triumph, you know, in the richest country in the history of the earth, we should take care of our people. We should take care of the people on the bottom, you know, and that's like, when you have people living in multi-million dollar houses, two blocks from people living in tents under bridges, are you surprised that there's crime? You know, what are they supposed to do? You know, and then it's like, you don't think they're bitter under there looking at your multi-million dollar house. You got power wheels in the front yard that like, they could have lived somewhere for the cost of that power wheel or whatever, you know? And it's, and it's like, I don't think it's that rich person's fault necessarily that there's somebody living under a bridge there, but we're all in this together. So I think remembering that, that um, everyone's human, you know, everyone's like struggling. Everyone's like trying to do the best for themselves and their loved ones or whatever. I think that's important to keep in mind. Um, and I, I would also say just like, and this is psychedelics taught me this, I'll say, we are all connected. You know, it's easy to start thinking ourself, ourselves as separate, but the air goes in, becomes parts of us, and then part of us becomes the air. If I smile at you, we, we don't even have to know each other and I can smile at you and you'll smile back. You know, that's remarkable. Whereas if I like make a threatening gesture, it'll negatively impact how you feel. How we're acting every day is affecting the world around us. It's like uh, polluting the water you drink from or whatever. So I do think there's this connection that people don't always feel with their fellow human that makes it so they don't care. You know, and I, I don't know what to say when someone's like, why should I care about that per person sleeping under a bridge? Why should you care about a homeless person? I don't know. You know, I just don't even know what to say to that. It's a tough one. No, it's tough. <laughs> Is that a bad note then? <laughs> no, no, that was perfect. Yeah. Well, thank you 
for coming on here and talking through all these different issues. Thank you, Zachary Pisik. This has been wonderful. Yeah, thank you. It has been great. To continue your learning, go to our website, discoveringacademia.com. There, you'll find the show notes, resources mentioned, ways to get involved, and much more pertaining to each professor. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and join our newsletter to stay up to date. Until next time.